This episode of the How to Play Quidditch podcast is brought to you by howtoplayquidditch.org. Resources on that website include game film, training generators, and of course, this podcast. Now on to the podcast. I think that's a really good start from New Zealand, getting the Quaffle Bear and also making good work on the Bludger, having Bludger control in the beginning. Welcome back to the How to Play Quidditch podcast. I'm your host, Alejo Enriquez. I'm very excited today to be recording on a subject that I'm very passionate about, which is coaching. And coaching is a really very broad subject. There's a lot that goes into being a coach to coaching. And when you say coaching, that can refer to coaching on the sideline of the game, coaching in, as in preparation for your team. Coaching really can also run the gamut just to to being recruiting, especially if you're at a college program, recruiting is a big part of the job. Um, but I, I've been coaching for a long time and I bring my own experience from other uh, activities like martial arts to coaching. And I'm really excited to try and cover the whole thing. I really wanted to get in and, and talk about the different aspects of coaching and how to do it effectively and I'm very, uh, very excited today to bring in a guest who has a lot of coaching experience that we can hopefully bounce off each other and give you some good content. So to introduce my guest, with five years of Quidditch combined with a fierce love for her home country of New Zealand, she's the ultimate Quidditch nerd. Having played in over six countries and a plethora of Quidditch projects from coaching to commentating to presidencies to fundraising, is she a keeper? Is she a seeker? Yes! She is Gentles. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Gentles. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor to be here, actually. <laughs> well, I'm I'm really grateful that you you, you feel that way. Um, honor feels like a strong word, but I'll take it. Um, well, you know what? Being in one of the uh, one of the greatest Quidditch nations on the planet, who wouldn't be excited to be here? To be honest, <laughs> uh, you mean you're um, referring to Texas, I assume? Oh yes, absolutely. Stone <laughs> <laughs> Quidditch nation, basically. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, I've got three questions here. These are personal questions related to Quidditch to help me and the audience get to know you uh, a little better. Better first, so. Uh, why don't we just jump right in? First question for you: What's the what's a moment of personal triumph for you in Quidditch? Uh, so one of the biggest and most personal moments for me is I founded the Quidditch Association of New Zealand back in 2016, and two years later I found myself walking through the streets of Florence as manager, uh, captain, coach, as it as it happens, and a team of 13 New Zealanders behind me. Um, and it was just an incredible moment to have taken a sport that was non-existent two years ago in our country, essentially. And now we were at the world stage. So that was an wow. incredible moment of triumph for me in Quidditch. I was very proud of myself. <laughs> That's amazing. It was There was no Quidditch in New Zealand before you started it? There was sort of maybe on and off, uh, like universities running it, but there was no sort of formalism. There was no national page. Um, It kind of just existed completely internalized. So we've at least managed to formalize it, and we're coming back for our second World Cup. So we're very excited to be coming over. 
Yes, that's right. Um, did were I remember you guys are the black brooms now? Were you the black brooms that first walk you took through Italy? Absolutely. We uh, much I, I as it is almost all teams internationally just prefer to go with Team USA or Team UK. Right. Um, but it's a special thing uh, in over in Australia and New Zealanders. We like to call ourselves. We don't like to call ourselves Team Australia and Team New Zealand. We like to yeah. give ourselves a little nickname. So we're called the Drop Bears and the Blackbirds. Um, yes, the Drop Bears. I love that. That's so perfect. And yes, the Blackbirds is beautiful. Also, um, <laughs> I've I've heard that before. For I think rugby and soccer, I've heard those teams like like the all blacks and all whites and then like the soccerers and stuff. So I appreciate personally that that is a tradition yeah. you've continued in Quidditch. Exactly. If you go online and check out Wikipedia as well, you'll find our basketball team are called the tall blacks. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, man. check it out there. It's all across this, all our sports basically have a lot of different, uh, different names like that. So yeah, we've now got Quidditch black brooms to add to that. That's so great. Oh man! All right. Well, congratulations for you for building uh, something that's that's grown in New Zealand. That's super cool. All right. So, second question for you: What's the most epic thing you've ever seen in Quidditch that you were not personally participating in? You may have been a ref or, or a spectator, but you you weren't playing in it. But something amazing. So this is a this is a bit of a story. So I'll try and keep it pretty short. But essentially, this was at the Australian State Shield um, back in 2018. And you can actually go online and look at these videos on their Facebook page. Um, but essentially what happened was some of the two best teams, in my opinion, in the world, are sort of like the equivalent of um, maybe the state Texas team and, I don't know, unfortunately, like another Boston. equivalent Boston, so, like yeah, going Boston up against and, each and, other. Yeah. <laughs> so this was the best of the best, your national team selection, um, sort of your top 60 in the country were there. And it was just amazing watching them both uh, try and score goals at each other. And I remember just the whole crowd being on their feet, cheering like crazy. If you've ever been to a football match, everyone kind of goes, oh, oh. And just was <laughs> yes. that it was such a magical, magical experience to be there in that crowd with such energy and people just sharing their hearts out. Yeah, so that was a really beautiful moment for me in Quidditch and made me realize, you know what, this this sport has something more to it than uh, than I've ever imagined. And it continues to surprise me every single day. So, yeah, very special moment there. That's great. All right, and uh, third question for you Uh who is someone in the Quidditch community that, that you look up to? Tell us a little bit about someone. Oh, someone. That's that's yeah. so hard. Um, it's so, <laughs> so hard. I can't believe you're putting this on me. No, I guess um, the person for me that sort of started it all has to be a person called Nick Hurst. Um, they're currently based. They're, they used to be president of Quidditch Australia. Um, they were sort of the very first person I met in Quidditch. And we've both grown and gone our own separate ways. And he's now living in Berlin. And I think he made administration fun for me. He made Quidditch fun for me. And he always pushed me to be a better version of myself um, and showed me sort of what volunteering could actually give and how much he got out of it. So I'd say Nick Hurst. On the other side of it, I'd say the gameplay. I've just been really lucky to have such a wonderful string of coaches. I think the count is now out at about 10. 
in the last five years. And every single one of them has brought something different, brought something new to the table. And they've never taken no for an answer. They always make me as an athlete a lot better. Every single day that I get to train with them is a privilege um, and how much they invest into me. So every single one of them have been a huge inspiration to how I've developed in the sport. Wow, that's great. Thank you for sharing all of that. All right. So for those of you who read on the listeners who actually read the uh, podcast episode title before you uh, clicked on it, you may know this episode has a little bit to do with coaching. So I wanted to start, Jandal, start you off just talking a little bit more about uh, your what you've what your coaching experience is, what you've experienced from coaching and for how long you've been coaching. So just talk a little bit more about what you just said. Fantastic. So I've been coached, and as I said, in a lot of different coaches, so much diversity, so many different techniques. I personally have been a coach sort of on and off for the last two years. So my first team that I uh, coached was the Melbourne Unicorns at Melbourne University. And I did that for six months and then decided I need more experience. I need to, I didn't feel prepared to actually um, continue with that team. So I went back to the community, to a community team to solidify my knowledge a bit further and went on then to take that uh, second community team, Rearing to Go. After picking up all the skills I'd learned there and sort of bringing how to coach from both university and community teams, I then actually went on a coaching tour of Europe. So I spent a week in the Netherlands and a week in Switzerland um, going around all their various teams and community teams to sort of test out the field, play the field and see how they would respond to guest coaching. And it's something what I'm currently doing now is trying to work with Quidditch UK as part of their development program to actually go externally to their more remote teams and give them that very much needed one-on-one advice that I think a lot of teams are generally lacking in a lot of areas. So that's sort of my background in coaching. That's really cool. Yeah, that's really, uh, that's cool that you went in and coached guests. How was it guest coaching with different teams? What was that like for you? Um, I think initially it's actually sitting down with the actual coach of the team beforehand made a huge difference. Um, Mm. There were some teams that I just jumped straight in and other teams that um, I really had a nice long chat. And I actually think that getting to talk to the coach beforehand um, kind of gave me more of an idea of what kind of people I was dealing with. And I actually found that uh, it was extremely varied. Some were much more uh, sociable. Some were much more competitive. Some, I even actually found that gender was... um, very, very different as well. So there were some teams where the majority of the team were um, were female or some teams that majority were male. And so those attitudes were very interesting to sort of work with and try and find out what their motivations were as well. So guest coach is quite uh, a different challenge, I find, because you have to very, you have to look very broadly. But I think as well, you have coming in objectively you're not prone to a lot of the biases, I think, that a guest coach, that a, a regular coach has where they have different friendships and social connections through the team. Mm. So you can kind of yeah. assess everybody on an equal playing field, which I think was very useful for them and for me. That is, re- that is really cool. I really uh, I really admire that you went through that. Um, I, uh, I've, I've gone to do some... I've trained with different teams here in Texas, and I don't feel like the culture is quite as welcoming to like, hey, we've got some rando here who coaches. Let's just have them coach the team for the day. I feel like a lot of 
teams, and not all of them, but a lot of teams are very proprietary about their who's who's running the show. So I think that that's really cool. That 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 says a lot about the culture in Europe that that you went on a coaching tour. So um, exactly, but I was also working with countries like Switzerland and the Netherlands. So these are two countries that are sort of in sort of between the 10th and 20th in, in the world rankings. So there's still yeah. a lot of gaps that needed to be filled. Um, and a lot of these teams are in very remote communities. Um, so the chance for someone with all that experience to come, they jump on it. I did actually go to Germany as well and a little bit to France and a bit of Belgium as well. But in those instances, because I was in countries that are very heavily established and they have set structures and language is also a bit of a barrier, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, um, language. <laughs> Yeah, so I, those opportunities, when I went around, I sort of sat in on those sessions and watched the coaches instead and tried to learn what they did differently to see how it varied mm-hmm. from country to country. That's, re- that's really cool. And that makes a lot of sense, too. I can definitely see that, yeah, the more established a team is that, you know, that just being there and watching it operate can definitely provide a, an insight. So with, with your coaching experience and background, I'm curious that uh, – I'm hoping that this podcast will go out to all different kinds of people, but I feel like um, a lot of people become here in Quidditch, especially a lot of people become coaches for the first time at the ripe old age of 21, you know, like as opposed to many sports that are more established where you, you're an assistant coach for years before you have your, your chance in the big chair. Um, So why don't we talk for a little bit? I'd love to hear your insights on what are the kind of the, the main things to, to focus on for a first time, coach which I, I think part of when you're the first time you're a coach you usually didn't start the team yourself and so and sometimes you do but but often I think it's the case is that someone was a coach and you're just going to come in and do what they did like talk, talk a little bit about what are some of the pitfalls what are some of the uh, things to focus on to turn yourself from a first-time coach into uh, a, let's say a very experienced coach I think uh, one of the biggest things that come that sticks out to me, sort of as mostly as what common mistakes are, but also just generally are goals. And mm. I think one of the problems is, is when you, you, as a coach, if you're a first-time coach, you're coming from a position where your goals have been very personal. Um, I want to be a better athlete. I want to be a better chaser, beater, whatever. But now yeah. you're having to apply that goal to an entire team. And I think... This is something that a lot of coaches struggle with is transitioning from that personal goal to, say, a, t- a goals of 15 people. A lot of players will tend to just try and say, okay, we're going to win as many games as possible. That's, that's very lazy goal, to say that. That's like, that's, exactly. that's very lazy to say that. That's because you're not providing any kind of roadmap of how to get there. That's exactly a good point. Exactly. And that's the second thing is, um, you sort of have to look a lot into realism of your team as well. So what is a realistic goal? You have to take into account, are you a social team? Are you a competitive team? And it's often really hard for a lot of coaches to recognize um, you're dealing with a lot of different personalities. Some of them will have different goals. Some will want to be really competitive, some not so competitive. So your role as the coach, I always find the first thing you should consider as a new coach is what do we as a group want to achieve and how can I get everyone else's goals to align with this overarching uh, vision? So 
for me personally, when I started coaching, this was the very first thing I did. I went and I put out a Google form and I said to everybody, you know, prize for the ninth person to fill out this form. <laughs> and so they all filled it out to be the ninth Same person. Um, uh, so, but then at least from that, I had a much better idea going into it. Okay, is this person's goal where they want to do fitness or competitive or they want to do better in these areas? And then after that, with the leadership that I was working with, we then established um, where our path was for that uh, for that coming season. So I think that's one of the first things that coaches could consider. I think the other thing that uh, you also have to consider is, and this is a personal piece of advice, um, especially if you're in a university team, try and have two coaches. And I know this sounds quite controversial um, to many yeah. people. Some people might disagree. But I always am of the opinion that you generally get people with a lot of big egos who like to be in control and like to run things their way. But often that can power corrupts essentially. Um, yes, and it's absolutely. really vital that you are having a second person to bounce ideas off who you can share techniques, share new ideas. I often, often, I often say, if you can try and have someone who's a coach, whose experience is more chaser aligned and someone who's more beta aligned, they are two completely different areas and it's really important as a coach, you can't possibly, if you're playing in the team as well, you can't possibly um, try and accommodate for all those skills. So two coaches is a really good idea because you can bounce ideas off how you can integrate those two areas and tactics together. And if, and another thing, you can take this a step further, is also try and make sure that you have two coaches of different genders. Um, one of the things I've personally seen is we are seeing a severe underrepresentation, particularly in female coaches and females in positions of gameplay leadership specifically. Yeah. So ensuring that all your players are accounted for, all your players are used effectively. That starts with your leadership. So you've got to make sure that you're not just make you're kind of integrating and having diversity in that leadership as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely, and and I would say that that um, a lot of teams, a lot of player players think they're being inclusive, but maybe aren't as inclusive as. And it's not necessarily that there's it's a fault thing. It's not their fault. We are surrounded, all of us, by images that are very you know that where gender is very, a lot of gender roles and that that's to to really truly break those we really have to sometimes do something that that we feel like is going out on a limb but isn't actually going out on a limb like having a, a a female coach it's like well obviously if you have a person who is super energetic and knows everyone and knows the technique and knows everything like that and they're an obvious slam dunk they're the coach but like if there's if it's between two people like you know, the, then it's suddenly all these biases maybe come into play a little bit. And I think that that's one thing that is important in coaching is being aware of biases you can't possibly really be aware of. And and I don't know if that if that's kind of vibing with, with what you're talking about, but that's just kind of been on my mind a little bit, that, that sometimes you have to go against your own biases to prove that they're not, they don't rule you, which, you know, because unfortunately the reality is that they do. And we shouldn't let them. And I really do think that. And, and um, 
I think it, it's really, you know, you're absolutely right that there's an underrepresentation gameplay leadership of, and guess what? A lot of, uh, a lot of female players end up moving into managerial roles and not, they're not viewing themselves as athletes first. And then, then the team doesn't utilize them as athletes because it hasn't placed that expectation on them. Um, so, because for example, I don't know how many female ball carriers there are, like, and I don't know how many you've seen going around. Have you seen teams that coach their women to, to ball handle, basically, would you say? Yes, um, I actually have been very fortunate uh, in Australia. They are very, very strongly in favor of ball-carrying females, um, mm, mainly yeah. from a tactical point of view, which I will not disclose here because Luke Derrick will have my head. Um, <laughs> uh, if he's listening. But... <laughs> hey, Luke, if you're listening. <laughs> um, but so the, the, the utilization of female ball carriers is a definite must. Um, but also even sort of building confidence. I think one of the uh, yeah. one of the biggest things, and this is going a little bit of a tangent, for me personally, when I was starting off as a female chaser, it was quite easy to get saddled into a wing, not a ball carrier. You were there yeah. behind hoops, receiving the ball. And what a lot of people don't realize is that's actually probably one of the hardest roles as a chaser to be introduced to in the sport because you're way down deep you're required to make large long passes long throws which you probably don't have the experience or the coordination to pull off and as soon as the ball travels that far down the pitch everybody you've got beaters you've got two or three chasers already suddenly laying into you um and it can actually cause a lot of pressure in that role and i find that it's interesting to see how Putting, I actually encourage people when you're trying to start people off in the sport, put them in the role of the ball carrier because they have a much wider view and they're calling the shots and making the decisions. Um, but they actually, through that, they understand the game a lot quicker than just trying to be in the right place for a ball, essentially. Um, they just tend to get more of an appreciation for the game. So a bit of a side tangent there. But to come back to the two coaching um to come back to the reason, another reason why I choose two coaches, especially for university teams, is the workload. Your students, mm-hmm. most of you, I hope, um, you're having to deal with an incredible amount of your studies. And although a lot of us think Quidditch is life, when you're a student, it can't take up that much of your time. And when you have a second coach, it really helps to share the workload. It helps to share the pressure. Um, There are going to be times in university where you have an assignment due. And as a coach, it's tough. You have to be the the embodiment of what your team is. You have to set the standard. When there are two of you to support each other and lift each other up, you then become something much stronger together than you ever could be apart. So that's another reason why I encourage it. In community teams, um, I find that it's a lot easier to have sort of one main coach and assistant coach. Um, it's a much easier structure to and easier to facilitate, um, but sort of we can go further down into that later. <laughs> For sure, um, and I uh, I remember um, when I uh, was when back when the Victoria team actually had a real team in Victoria, Texas, not Victoria, um, Australia, which always. I still occasionally get messages on Victoria Quidditch like, hey, when's this thing? And I'm like, what the hell? Like, oh, they're talking about the Victoria Australia. Like, no, that's Victorian Quidditch. Um, (laughs) But yes, the Victoria Quidditch, like, I've always tried to, I mean, I'm the coach and I'm not a student, so I feel like I can take on the 
workload myself, but I always try and find people who can step up and take leadership roles. I'm never the team captain. I always have someone else be the captain because you want to always have multiple people in leadership roles. No one should be trying to take everything on, even even when you're a faculty member like me, but especially if you're a student, as you exactly as you pointed out, that that, that can easily you can think you've got it all under control and then midterms hit and suddenly the team just can go dark. And so, mm. yeah, I think being responsible with a team means taking responsibility, but also that means estimating accurately how much energy you actually have to spend on it, being realistic with that. Mm. So exactly. That's a really good point. And burnout is such a big issue now in Quidditch. We're seeing a lot of uh, members in much of the higher up organizations and national governing bodies. It's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're finding a few people t- having to forcibly take a step back from Quidditch because it's just taking so much. So trying to subtly get people involved, you know, just be a coach. If you're a coach all on your own, it's quite intimidating. But oh, two or th- two coaches, that's actually a much more palatable. It's like, oh, great, I have someone here that's supporting me and has got my back. It's a much um, more efficient system, I find, to help keep people and, more importantly, retain your leadership. Um, yes. So instead of having, an, sort of having a system which filters um, out the best of the best. So the people who are utterly dedicated to the sport will give up their lives and their careers and do everything on hold just to go and be a part of the national governing body. Um, although that's great, it's important to know that, you know, volunteers helping support them through the process so that they want to keep getting involved is also important. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that always... Um, I think that, that, that some people, and, and, and this can happen to anyone. It's definitely happened to me before. You start to buy into your own myth to believe what you're, you, you start to exaggerate what you think you're capable of. And, uh, that's how you can get into trouble. So I think it's always the most leadership, the most responsible, the most potent leadership move is always to delegate in some way. It, not to do it in a way where you're, you're doing it. Be, to demonstrate the power you have, but to demonstrate the trust you have in others. I think that's I also, important. I also think the next, the other, to add to that, another thing you could say is when you hop into a leadership position, something that should always be in the back of your mind is who's going to take over? Um, who's going to be, mm, who's going to yeah. replace me? Um, who's yeah. going to be able to step up when I step down? Um, and I think yeah. that there's not a lot of people who think about that. Uh, when they go into a leadership role and trying to coach and support other people into your role is something that is also very important. I was very fortunate um, where I came on. I had two amazing coaches, uh, Emily and Morgan, back in Australia. They could see my potential as a coach and actually spent six months training me to be a coach. So the transition was actually very smooth and seamless. So asking to get, and this is something that coaches can do, is if you see someone in your team that you think has potential to be a coach, just get them involved in the discussions a bit more. Ask them, hey, what did you think of this play? What are your thoughts? What are your opinions? That's what it is to be a coach, is to think about the plays and the motivations and the players. It's more like pieces of a puzzle. And you can get sort of light a fire, light a passion in your players. And it's really amazing when you suddenly have people stepping up to be coach 
rather than people going, oh, well, I guess I'll, I'll take it over for the next year. I'll do the next season then. Someone's so, got to do it. <laughs> and it's, a, it's hope, trying to generate a generation of active coaches rather than passive coaches and reluctant leaders, which is what we need to take the sport to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That um, I actually want to dig into that a little bit more. You've piqued my interest. Talk a little bit more about when they were training you to be a coach. What that was like, maybe like talk about what the practices were like and how they give specific examples of how they engaged you in that process. So, like I said, a lot of it, um, they they are very vocal person. So they would always make sure they took time out of their day to listen to me and see what my thoughts were. And it was the same way, like they'd ask me for my thoughts, keeping me involved on social media as well, Um, talking to, uh, keeping me involved in their discussions, for example, inviting me to their coaching meetings um, and showing me how the whole process, how their process worked, gave me a lot of insight into how, um, I could take on my own and make coaching my own. So they weren't necessarily sharing uh, what they were just showing me how they ran things. And I took a lot of that on board and put my own spin on it. So when I eventually took over the leadership of the team, I had fresh ideas, but sort of kept that sense of familiarity as well for the team. So they didn't feel like mm-hmm. there was such a jagged transition, if that made sense. Yeah, that's really cool. That, uh, that's a, I would say you're very lucky to have gone through that. Um, thinking to myself about the audience, I wonder, I wonder how many people have been just been promoted to coach this year or are starting a new team and have never sat through a coach's meeting before. So why don't you share the gift you have with uh, our listenership? Talk a little bit about um, talk a little bit about running a coach's meeting. Let's say that someone's been put in the big chair. And obviously, if you've been to a bunch of these meetings, maybe you just do what your predecessors have. But let's say you don't have that luxury. Talk a little bit about what... Oh what goes into making a successful coaches meeting? Of course. So first things first is consider what medium works for you. So does sitting down with someone for coffee every week work? Or does someone, like, do you need to meet once a month? Do you really need to meet every single week? Is once a month enough? Depends on how often you train as well. Do you prefer to chat with someone on Facebook a lot and bounce ideas off? Are you quite a creative, energetic coach and you want to try all these tactics? Or do you want to keep trainings very structured and you kind of have this very clear-cut pan and you want to stay close to the ch- keep it very close to the chest? Um, so that's sort of the first thing is how are you going to sort of bounce around your ideas as coach? And most importantly, who are you going to bounce them off? Um, so for me personally, I had my other coach. So there was that constant flow of discussion talking, and that was really positive. Another example is your leadership. Talk to your captains, talk to your um, managers. Uh, even if you have enthusiastic people on the team, one of the things I, uh, I personally did when I started my own coaching, I called it coffee with the coach. Every Wednesday, I would sit at a particular cafe for an hour and buy whoever showed up a free coffee. Um, And I usually had two or three people come along for that coffee. And I got to really engage with the team and see what their thoughts were. And I got to say, what do you think if we tried this thing? So when I say coaches meeting, it takes whatever form works most best for you and how it fits into your schedule. But the key part there is to really look into how can I really play around with this team? How can I find out what their motivations are and how can they feel involved? 
um, if that helps give you a bit more clarity. If we're going to more uh, professional styles of coaching, um, I had the very great uh, fortune to play with the London Monarchs in the Quidditch Premier League this summer. And so kind of the way our coach communicated with the rest of us is that was through Facebook. Uh, so the coach would put up certain plays, certain tactics, and the comments section was just a flurry of activity. So the, all the coaches and the players and all the different people were interacting. So that was another way that um, the meeting and the coach kind of got to draw advice out and really tease out what um, parts of the team needed to be worked on. And like I said, as a coach, you can't, you, you can, some coaches are all knowledgeable, um, but I always say you don't know what you don't know. And the best thing yeah, you can do as a sure. coach is to encourage people to come to you and talk to you and share their ideas because you actually might find something completely new and unique. Yeah, that definitely should always be open to new new information, new new ideas. Like, uh, you know, even people who've been coaching for decades, obviously not Quidditch, because Quidditch hasn't existed for decades, but even other sports that have existed, you know, it, it there has to always be a dialogue. It's very, coaching is a very, ultimately very interpersonal process that uh, many of the greats, if you read about great coaches throughout the different sports are, they're always praised for their communication and their, you know, uh, creating an environment where the players um, have ideas and, and bring them bring them forward so that everyone, even even very structured top down sports like like American football, which is basically half a step short of actual literal military exercises, there's still uh, has to be a dialogue between the players as they develop, you know, what the on field product. Um, exactly. I, I really like all of. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No. Keep continue. We'll 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 get to some of my other thoughts later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. I uh, I really like the the this this establishing of of coaching as a, as an interpersonal process, which it really is. But I feel like there's another part of it as well, which is I mean, I I talk a lot about refereeing. Like I referee because I have to, not because I want to. And I talk about that I don't really have elite referee eyes. Like, my eyes don't quite go where they're supposed to as a referee, and I work on that. I feel like I do have much better coaching eyes, and I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts on that. I, when you're coaching, when you're actually watching people do drills and scrimmages and setting them up, where are your eyes going? What is it that uh, – what, what's your process for helping your team develop? Wow, that's that's an oh man! I've never had to put this into words before, but I'll give it a darn good crack. <laughs> well, I know, um, like those who are really great at it don't usually have to explain it; just do it, right? You know. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts because you know I think that just like as I talk about my ref, my my ref eyes are, are not that good, but my coaching eyes are very good, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. Here, so this I have a two step process personally, and this is how I've used to share this. Um, so the first thing is uh, basically what can be improved. So when I look at a co I try not to look at the individual. And I think this is something that a, bit, a lot of coaches make the mistake of. When they watch a play, they see a player make a mistake and the opposition capitalize on that mistake. And they go, okay, that's yeah. a weakness in that player. And that is, in my opinion, the completely the mm. wrong attitude to take. Um, when it comes to trying to develop players, because what you're trying mm -hmm. to do is you're establishing a very distinct hierarchy of your good and bad players. When 
You're not dealing with a hierarchy, you're dealing with a team. And you need to figure out how to work the team best to its strengths. So quite often as a coach, I always say that certain players may not be strong in certain areas. So it's important to find out where their strengths are and place them in areas. And that comes through trial and error when you're watching a game play out. Say if you see a beater that's a very aggressive, but very, very bad on the defense, you can think, all right, is there something I can do to help this player strengthen their ability in that area or can I shift them to a different place and shift them to a different position will that help them um, if someone's sitting heavily down behind hoops say why don't I change them into a, a distributing position let's see if I can push their them personally that's personally I think as far as you should take it as a coach um, not trying and establishing that mental hierarchy um, the second thing I would say about coaching eyes is again trying to maybe apart from singling out the players is try and experiment a lot uh try and see which areas are going to find that little niche and find that strength and find that synergy which we like to use this word a lot in australia synergy um try and establish the trust between players and this is something that uh, I find incredibly interesting. Certain players will only pass to others. Mm. And mm -hmm. there's, and that can actually be very detrimental to certain styles of play. You could have two ball carriers, for example, that only ever pass to each other and like to charge through and maybe once in a while they will utilize their wings so it's always trying to make sure that they're each one of your players are considering all their options and not only that that they are all acting as a team as well um so when i'm kind of got my coaching eyes on i'm trying to make sure okay are these players biasing towards certain styles can i shift them into a different place so that they learn to build that trust because one of the biggest weaknesses i've seen within certain teams you have two or three and i quote unquote star players you take one of them mm -hmm. out you're no longer a team you're a, a team of individually really good people but you're not a collective unit you need to make sure that um, those types of uh, links are ubiquitous across your entire team, not just between certain players. So that's something else that I look for, the trust between the players and making sure that I'm making the most of those players' strengths when I've got my coaching eyes on. Mm -hmm. That's a really good answer. I definitely, uh, definitely some teams have always come out of nowhere every year that people don't expect because it's more cohesive to make up for the lack of, I guess you could say, star power. That's definitely everyone talks about that, but I think that I think that that's a really good point. That in order to establish that, you really have to get granular with noticing who is passing to who in what situation, who is who has a connection with who, who has chemistry. You could say with with what other players. Um, and that's not to say that certain chemistries don't work well, um, but for. For teams that are very smart and teams that are watching your team very intimately, they will establish mm. those trust links and they will learn to break them. You see this a lot in Europe. There are certain players on certain national teams that shall remain unnamed uh, that only pass to each other. 
and you'll notice it's you'll see that it works it's a beautiful system against a lot of teams that haven't realized this but a lot of the experienced teams when they come ahead they shut that play down and all of a sudden the team have nothing they have no tactics they have no synergy they have no trust and they're just trying to mm-hmm. uh, bash their way through um, so yeah it's really important to look out for that i find yeah definitely that's a good that's a good insight uh, i'm going to hit you with another on-field coaching question because this is one thing that new teams always always struggle with how exactly do you get your chasers and beaters to work together because that's the number one thing that new teams always i hear it yelled across the field and i'm like why are you wasting your oxygen everyone already knows your chasers and beaters are supposed to work together and yet you'll have kind of newish teams and it's like chasers work with your beaters while the beaters are off like getting tackled and like you know chasing balls around down and like running down like some wing random wing player and beating that person instead of covering the play how do you approach that all right so i have this really lovely drill that i like to run and i call it breaking in my beaters and chasers (laughs) um hit me with it hit me with it shoot in my veins all right so (laughs) Uh, the way that it's very simple drill. Uh, so you have your beaters and your chasers. They've been playing for a couple of months. And then I say, okay, we're going to reverse positions. We are going to have all the chasers playing beater and all the beaters playing chaser. And I actually do this on a smaller level with my chasers. I actually say, okay, all the wings, you're now ball carriers, all the ball carriers, you're now wings. So I switch it up. I force them all to play the opposite role that they're not used to playing. And it really works for chasers when they suddenly go, oh my goodness, this is so hard. And the beaters are all there and most of the time they're catching like, uh, they're kind of bear hugging the ball to their chest as you know <laughs> you do when you're trying to catch a bludger um, instead of catching it nice and high and straight. So it's, it's really fun to watch and seeing them uh, sort of trying to, it, it's sort of that whole drill there is to help build an appreciation for each other. And mm. it's also a, a sneaky test to see if you've got a few star beaters hidden amongst your chasers or a few star <laughs> chasers hidden amongst your beaters, uh, which is always good as a backup. Um, so I first that's the first line I always like to lay down is appreciate the other positions. Chasers, you can't always blame your beaters and beaters, you can't always blame your chasers. The next thing I would ask and the next thing I would do is I try and design a lot of very specific drills where the uh, chasers are forced to make either a play off the beaters or the beaters are supposed to make a play off the chasers and vice versa. And I train that very, very specific case so they know to be watching for that. I also do a lot of other things like... um, I try and encourage systems where we develop keywords like strong or uh, charge or crash, mm-hmm. um, and they all mean different tactical plays. And the beaters uh, often get given these calls. These are chaser plays. And yet the beaters are telling the chasers what's going on and communicate complicated situations through that language. And mm-hmm. we also try and get the beat, uh, the chasers, for example, the wings, I always put them in charge of saying how many bludgers are we have at all times. So when yeah. you're walking up the pitch, it is not the keeper's role or the ball carrier's role to know how many bludgers we have. The wings are saying whether we've got control or not. 
Um, and I find trying to mix the language means that they're both much more aware of each other's positions before they go into tactical plays. So those would be my first two tips to try and like build that synergy. And if we wait for maybe another podcast, I can go into some really specific <laughs> drills that I've done as well to help uh, really push hard that, uh, that sort of communication and tactics side of things. Yeah, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on drills because a lot of it also comes down to your personnel and who you have. And, and of course, that's in Victoria Quidditch. Even when we had a, a team, we never really had like enough people to scrimmage. So I became extremely good at designing drills for three to eight people. Um, I would My favorite drill, which I was always excited when we had seven people for, was two beaters on offense and two beaters on defense and then like a keeper on defense and two chasers on offense just to get the just to get that timing down of when the offense does not have bludger control because of course getting bludger control is like one of the big sticking points you can either do it well or you can do it poorly you cannot do it at all and so like getting the chasers to actually like recognize the positioning and the what's about to happen next for the beaters really kind of you know helps helps solidify your 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 entry point into the attack because, one of the, yeah exactly yeah you've you've just spurred my memory all of a sudden um we do actually have a very effective drill for this in australia which i think uh a lot of teams will know about so do stop me if you've heard of it it's called uh chaser beta split attention so i'm sure you're aware beta can only look in a certain 180 degree plane uh, so we work yeah, on a basically. lot of tactics that work on shifting the quaffle outside of that 180 degree plane. Mm, so yeah. behind the beaters to try and get the chasers are actually responsible for controlling the gaze and the vision of the uh, defensive beaters. So we work very mm -hmm. carefully in helping our chasers understand that. So that they can shift the the positions of their beat of the opposing beaters to help maximise the chances of regaining control. So that's a drill we really like to play a lot in Australia, um, but it's a little bit yeah. complicated without a whiteboard uh, and a lot of magnets <laughs> and fourteen <laughs> magnets. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The um, um, yeah. I think it's generally the de general doctrine is when you're attacking. A team that has budget control like basically the, the quaffle has to get engaged in the play or else your beaters are just on a suicide mission um so you have to kind of get up to draw the attention of one of the beaters and then sort of hope that your two beaters can attack the other beater um but i know there's a lot of i know different teams run different versions of this and that's manipulating the beaters defense with the quaffle is definitely a big part of it and that's something that should be practiced Oh. Mm. And and then you and then you switch chasers and beaters doing that drill and then everything really everything really becomes a nightmare. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a hard. It is a difficult. It is difficult. I think like trying to break that beta chaser uh, mentality, uh, sort of how to mm. really integrate the two areas. But like I always said, your your best solution is just to make them play each other's positions. And yeah. that's how people, and it's not just for beating and chasing. You can do it for, say, defensive versus offensive seeking, which I've seen done. Yeah. You can do it um, even 
we do it all the time, I think. And when you do half courts where you have a defensive mm-hmm. team and an offensive team, and then you switch to try and get them to yeah. cope with different mentalities. So there's so many different ways you can use this. I think that that can never really become great unless you draw from many different sources. I feel like even if your your body precl- or your your temperament precludes you from certain positions in Quidditch, you should still try them all just to know what it's like. And going beyond that, I would say a lot of the biggest influences on my coaching come from my martial arts background rather than, you know, because Quidditch, of course, is still kind of new. And I know a lot of people coming to Quidditch from uh, have have football experience, especially here in Texas. Um, but, like, just learning different martial arts, like, there's always something you can take to Quidditch, whether it's how to fall or uh, how to how to move, how to move and keep your balance, things like that. There's all sorts of different things that can come in. Um, what uh, predominantly, what predominant external sports do you think people who are coming from for into Quidditch are bringing into the sport? So would that be sort of American football, baseball, maybe basketball? Um, are those sort I of the key say, areas? I would say, yes. well, especially here in Texas, football is definitely number one. Um, I mean, you get, you get some people when you ask them what sports did you play, they say all of them. So, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I would say definitely football's number one. Um, I would say that basketball is probably number two and basketball has a lot of applications for how you use the space. Um, and then, uh, for how, how to kind of work the ball around and, and, um, and, and I know some people I've interviewed have, have had back, basketball backgrounds. I would say that baseball, sometimes you see some people who played baseball often come in and have a lot of success in Quidditch just because of the, especially a beater, just not only the throwing motion you develop and so forth, but also just kind of the heads up, kind of needing to know what's happening across the entire field all at once. Um, those are not the strongest ones. Um, uh, we had one player come in who, who was really good and she only had a background in soccer. Uh, but she was really good at soccer. And so just, again, that same kind of field awareness. And her balance was very, very good. She always moved very well. And I think that soccer develops your balance, especially because you're trying to use your legs for two things at once. Definitely motivates developing good balance. There's a, I hope I hope you do a podcast later on of the influences of different sports into Quidditch. There are so many uh, diverse sports, for example, uh, hurling in Ireland. Uh, There is, of course, handball in Europe, which is probably the equivalent of basketball to the United States. Um, Mm. Also Australian rules football, um, sort of a similar version of American football, but on a cricket pitch. Uh, And you also have rugby, of course, uh, big influences in England and New Zealand. Um, so yeah, I hope, I hope I can dig deeper into this sometime and see how, how, uh, sport, these sports really influence, uh, how, how what they have to well, bring into Quidditch. Cause there's something yeah, really, it can bring it in. Yeah. Cause one of the very interesting things that's happening over in Europe at the moment is everybody that's playing Quidditch now, uh, did not play Quidditch in high school or did not play it in school. Yeah. What we are seeing in Europe now is there are actually youth Quidditch teams. There are now regular team sessions happening for children of the ages of 5 to 14. 
And very recently, we have actually started to see some of the first of them. There are about 16, 17 in Switzerland, Germany, um, and other areas have actually started coming into the sport, um, having only played uh, Quidditch in high school. And it's incredible to see how these how these other sports have not impacted these players when they're coming in fresh off the boat with the huge levels of athleticism, but also the tactical mindset that a lot of us have taken many, many years to cultivate. They already have that. So it's a keen thing to keep an eye out for, I think, is watch watch how these other sports uh, or lack of is going to influence Quidditch in the future. Yeah. No, that's definitely, I think, uh, I, I was kind of thinking, yes, of course, as players, it helps to diversify and learn other sports. But also, if you're wanting to coach, I think it benefits you to go learn another sport, or learn a martial art, learn something else, just to bring in different ideas. And because, I mean, you can just, if you're, if you've only ever been coached by someone and by this one specific person on a team and then you take over that team it's going to be more the same and it can get stale i think it always there should always seek to try and find new things find new ways to 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 spark new 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 imagination things that people don't see before because when you pull something on someone that they've never seen before it's almost always going to work the first time i'll just say that <laughs> oh, I fully agree. I think that there's amazing, amazing potential in other sports. It's something that's really beautiful about how the whole community, not just in Quidditch, but externally, how every one of them feeds off each other, especially ultimate yeah. uh, frisbee and how that feeds yes, off Quidditch as well. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard some people who play ultimate and, and, uh, and find a lot of influences. I can definitely see how using the space different, seeing the space a little differently than a lot of other sports do would really influence Quidditch. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to hit you with one more question real quick, and we don't have to make it a long one, especially because most people who maybe this is suited for don't need as much help. But talk a little bit about your perception of the difference between coaching a university or a startup team where you're just trying to recruit, you're just trying to build up the team, versus coaching when everyone has buy-in, when rather maybe rather than accruing that capital, you're spending it on trying to be get competitive wins. Well, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack here, so I'll try and keep it keep it <laughs> short, short and sweet. Um, sure. Uh, but so we've kind of touched a lot on what it is to be, and I talked a lot about goals and motivations with your smaller university teams. When you're looking at Quidditch and a community team or a national team or a state team, whatever, you have a bunch of people essentially in these bigger te- these these higher experience teams and a lot of egos to manage. Mm-hmm. Almost, if you look at a lot of the drop bears, uh, for example, all, a very large proportion of them are all coaches uh, or they mm-hmm. coach to some extent of their own respective teams. So... Yeah. That's sort of a two-way street in, in, in and of itself. And when you're working in these higher community teams, it's the same sort of principle. You're working with a lot of really experienced people and there's a lot of ego flowing around. So I would always say, and personally, is skill, like physical skill and physical knowledge is not something that should define you as 
a as the top coach. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but let me explain my point. Because as a coach in these high-tiered teams, you are actually, at this point in the sport, you are going to be dealing with players who probably have the same number of years in the sport as you do. They will have different perspectives and different ideas, which is why I always talk very heavily about that intrapersonal feedback loop that you should have with your players, uh, because you need to get those fresh ideas. In these bigger teams, the key thing you need as a skill is structure. You need to establish the respect for chains. You need to make sure that your authority and your ability to run the session smoothly and efficiently are what come first. Um, if I can elaborate that, uh, elaborate on that a little bit further, there's sort of another level of professionalism, if that makes sense as well, if that's a kind of mm -hmm. a better explanation yeah. of it. You're taking things a step up. You have to appreciate and understand that a lot of your players uh, know about some of the things you're going to teach them. So you need to make sure that there's a, a sort of a, a, a making sure that that high level team is a learning environment, but above that, um, a guiding, you're sort of meant to guide people into the right channels as well. Um, so I hope that kind of gives you more of an idea. Um, it's definitely a very scary environment, uh, having myself been in one just recently. Uh, and it's a whole nother world sitting in the changing rooms of a stadium and having to walk out onto the fields with the whole camera and you run past the trophy and all that, it's, uh, it puts you in a really different uh, frame of mind. And that brings me into the other part I wanted to touch on, which was mentality. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a lot less about what can I physically improve in my players? Because there are bits, most of it is just sort of fitness and little skills that you need to tweak. It's also about generating the right attitudes going into the game. So mm, yeah. a really good example of this is uh, you can actually compare the chance of Team UK versus uh, the Drop Bears. So the Drop Bears team, uh, they quite often said, when we go into a game, we play our game. That was the mentality mm -hmm. they were setting. Team UK's one was, who's going to win today, Team UK? <laughs> nice catchy tune. Um, but you can see how they kind of have to rally people behind that mentality, that unified goal, making sure that every single one of those players um, are physically um, willing to take everything to the next level through that mentality, through that goal, making sure that everyone's on the same page uh, with regards to that competitive spirit. Um, so I hope that kind of gives you two big contrasting areas of those two, of, of those sort of two different levels. And you'll find it in various, uh, it, it also very heavily depends on the coach as well and their particular mm. style. Um, I'm hoping to personally publish a series of uh, interviews with the head coaches of several uh, national teams so we can get more of a oh, comprehensive yeah. understanding of this in the coming months. <laughs> Well, I look forward to seeing that then. That's super cool. Um, yeah, I think, I think you've, I've, I've been peripherally involved with several um, MLQ teams, which are kind of at that higher level. And I definitely agree that uh, a team culture really makes an enormous difference, whether people, so much as simple as people, whether they, they believe that they're spending their time wisely just by being there, whether they believe they still have things to learn. Um, you know, I remember, and this is someone who 
will not not be named and in I don't have a, have a grudge against this person, but I was once an assistant coach and I was trying to teach something and one of the players was like, look, we've been playing for five years. We know all this stuff already. That's That by itself just told me that this team was doomed because if that's your attitude that we already know everything we need to, to, to be successful, that, you know, what kind of message are you really sending about what you were prepared to go through? You know, because it is humbling to break yourself down. That sucks. It does, doesn't feel good to, to to empty your cup. We actually have a saying in, in karate. This actually comes from karate where they would say a, a, a cup that's already full cannot be filled anymore. Whenever you go to a new school or learn a new style, every day coming into the dojo, we'd always have to empty our cup. Not literally, obviously. It's, there's no symbolic dumping out of a cup of water. But in the mind, you have to be like, well, I, I, I'm the man. I've got it going on, but I need to be ready to to take on more, to try to, mm-hmm. to break myself down and learn something new. You have to be ready to accept that you don't know everything yet. And because if you if if you're just well, this is as good as I'm gonna get. I don't need to get any better. Don't be surprised if someone else who was willing to get better ends up winning the trophy at the end. So. Yeah. One of the uh, the ways I like to personally deal with those uh, those individuals in question, uh, people that believe they know it all, uh, mm. I always like to have give them the great task of I like to put them in a position of responsibility, mild responsibility, mm. mind you. So, for example, if we have a new player to the team or someone who's less experienced, I will physically take that experienced player to one side and I will say, okay, this is your buddy. For the rest of the season, <laughs> if they beat you in this particular way, by or whatever, or I want you to make this player as good as you. You took you five years to get to this point. You now have a year to make this person as good as you. <laughs> and so, I try and at least teaching itself, I find, is a, is a, is a, in itself a way to learn new things as well. Um, mm-hmm. As a teacher, yeah. you never stop learning. And so I always find when people feel like they know it all or then put them into a position where they have to teach others and it's a whole other ball game. (laughs) Yeah, well, I tell my, my, because I teach biology, I tell my students the best way to learn something is to teach it. I'll tell them, you want to really make sure you understand this material, go find someone else and explain it to them. And then you'll find out what you don't know in a hurry. So I definitely agree that that's really, really solid advice right there. Get them to teach it and that'll... They'll find for themselves how to take themselves to another level, I can say. Exactly. And that's the key. Like, as a, as a coach, you know, if you are ever, uh, if you are a new coach or an old coach, there is actually a Facebook page called Coach More, um, which is just for Quidditch people. And mm, yeah. it's an amazing environment to really ask eight or nine, I think, of the world's best coaches that are on there. You can bring that to that page anything. I am currently chatting with a few different coaches across the world, um, everything from your local club university team to sort of counselling various uh, captains across the world um, to kind of give them tips and sort of help them with their team structure. So if you're feeling like you're isolated as a coach, you are seriously not. There are people all over the world who are willing to help you if you go looking for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure I can tell the listener that if, the listeners about to become a first-time coach, please feel free to reach out on Facebook to me or to Jandals, and I'm sure either of us can make a little time and send you some, send you some thoughts. 
Absolutely. I'll even Skype into your training session, which I have done, and it's been great fun. <laughs> Ooh, there you go. Wow, now, now we can see who's made the better offer here. <laughs> A story for another time, perhaps. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, I think we've made some really good use of our time. Um, I don't know if you have any closing remarks for our listeners who hopefully are feeling energized and ready to take on some new tasks. No, not really. I mean, I might like to take this opportunity to say that Quidditch New Zealand trainings happen on happening in Auckland right now. So if anyone's in the region, no. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me here on the show. It's been really wonderful to kind of share what I know. And like I said, coaching, Quidditch, everything about it is an incredible learning experience. So I hope I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. I really appreciate it. I think you've had a lot of really great insights that I think will help me and hopefully help the listener as well. Fantastic. There we go. All right. All right. Thanks. Signing off for myself and for Jandals. Uh, this is the How to Play Footage Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. You don't have to. I oh, saw great. that you wrote stuff down for that. I didn't bother to read it because I kind of want to react to it live. Um, but uh, oh, great. You know, but but that I mean that, that's great I, that you wrote those notes for yourself there. Yeah. Um, I can't I can't remember I can't remember what I wrote. So I will also be responding to it live. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me.